Abib, I've, I've had the pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with you over, over the last few years since, uh, since you and the team joined RBC Global Asset Management. And one of the things that's remarkable about you uh, is you're one of the few people I know who every time I meet them, they just have a big smile on their face. And I, I know I have a firm belief that uh, some of the best investors in the world are uh, optimistic people. Uh, to find businesses that are going to grow and produce value for the shareholders and ultimately for, for investors who invest in, in your fund, uh, you're looking for those entrepreneurs, for those business leaders that have that optimism that can drive that growth. So I'm wondering, how, how does that optimistic view of the world feed into your investment philosophy and, and how you've managed money now uh, over a, a couple of decades now? Uh, hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I, I guess I, I am an optimist by, by nature. And, um, you know, when one stops to think about it, there's a good reason to be optimistic. Uh, even though I, I think, I, I suspect, uh, human nature is, is actually to be quite pessimistic and fearful of of the future because it's uncertain and uncertainty kind of creates anxiety and, and, and fear. But when one looks back at, at history, you know, there's been this steady path of development and growth and, and improvement in, in our standards of living. And of course, the, each continent and each country and, and the world at, at times has had blips in that, uh, uh, and we've had gone through some dark times. But by and large, the world is a much better place now than it was, uh, you know, 50 years ago and 70 years ago and so on. Uh, and I mean, I just look at it in, in my own, um, uh, uh, in my own lifetime, I mean, as a child, you know, trying to just listen to music, you had to actually sort of go out and buy a, a some vinyl or, or, or a tape, uh, and then it was 8-track, and then it was cassette tape, and then CDs, and now, of course, you just stream the stuff on your phone, you listen to anything you want to, whenever you want to, wherever you want to. That's a kind of huge improvement, and, and the, the same improvements we've seen in, in medicine and food and, and, and things like that. So I, I think it's, it, it stands to sort of human ingenuity. Um, the, the human beings are wired to try and improve their their quality of life and, and the way they live. And uh, I, I think it's uh, that's such a strong trend. It's it's absolutely it makes sense to be optimistic about the future. And, and, and does that does that view of things help you as an investment manager? Oh, definitely. I, I think it, it's so easy uh, as, a, as an investor. First of all, what we're trying to do is predict the future. See where these businesses are going to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. And of course, it's very easy to find what can go wrong. There's a ton of stuff that can go wrong because we can look back in history and all the things that have gone wrong and we can, we can find those things and project those into the future. But human beings also have this ability to get things right and to innovate and find new ways and, and taste change and preferences change. And uh, I mean, you know, just look at, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I look at what's happening with kind of semiconductor technology. It's just astonishing, you know, what, what you can do on a phone nowadays. You know, it's just stuff that you carry around in your pocket. It's just, it's amazing. If you had said this to, to someone like 30 years ago, they would have laughed at you. Yeah, and, and, and so when you're out working with companies and, and trying to identify the next trends, 
uh, th that view of the world? Does it, does, it, does it help you identify the winners from the losers? Or is, is that even a relevant question? Well, yeah, you know, entrepreneurs are always, uh, they're real optimists, right? Yes, and, yes. and I think that's the, it's a really infectious thing about seeing entrepreneurs. You, you have so many, uh, in, in other walks of life, you know, again, human nature is that we look at the future with a degree of anxiety, but we look at the past because there's certainty and, and we're all very proud of our national past, our individual past and things like that, but always apprehensive about the future. Entrepreneurs are somewhat different. They, they seem to look back at the past and they find all sorts of fault with that. They say, you know, that, that's terrible. We're going to improve things. The future is going to be so much better. And it really is quite, um, it's a privilege of, of, of my role that we, we see so many entrepreneurs and so many optimists. Uh, it's wonderful. They, they have real imagination. Now, uh, n not only has the, uh, the, the world evolved, but certainly this industry has evolved uh, since you became a part of it. Uh, how, how does technology and the evolution of the industry play, play a role in, in what you and the team are doing day to day right now? Well, that's a pretty profound question, Dave, because, you know, uh, I'm an accountant by training and uh, I was recruited into this industry uh, as an analyst because, uh, you know, people thought that if I knew how accounts are put together, I'd be able to uh, interpret them and decipher them and, and figure that out. And, and you know, for, for that, that was my role for, for many years. Uh, we, uh, in those days, every time I wanted to sort of look at a company, you know, I would go down to the library. And, you know, sort of young people today would laugh at that, you know, library, what do you mean a library? Yeah, we used to have a library where, you know, we used to have a file full of the last five years, annual reports and quarterly reports. and. You know, I'd get get hold of this this file every time I want to look at a company and come back to my desk. And if, if the file didn't exist, then someone would send a, a telex and a telegram or or, 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 a, or fax off to something. You know, that, that makes me sound really old, but it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> and you know, it would take two, three, four weeks to get all of this information. And then uh, I'd, I'd go to my desk and I'd uh, fire up a spreadsheet. And like a good accountant, I'd you know set out for the last five years for each quarter, I'd set up a profit and loss account, a balance sheet and a cash flow statement. And I'd start tapping these numbers in. And it would take me the best part of a week just to gather the information. And only then would I know whether this, was, this business was growing or shrinking, whether its margins were increasing or decreasing, whether it's generating cash or burning cash, you know, how good they were at managing their working capital and so on and so forth. And so this is, a week's hard work before you can draw any conclusions about the business. And not just that, but at this stage, I haven't even looked at this company's other 5, 10, 15 global competitors. So if you worked really hard in those days and built up these spreadsheets and maintained them and you, you had other colleagues, you worked as part of a team and you all did this, you could figure out which were the best companies that were growing fastest, that were reaching inflection points, that were you know, doing something different and, and, and were, were more profitable or had better returns than their, their peer group. So you got paid for working really, really hard. And, and there was a real advantage of that. And that was like 25 years ago, 20 years ago. But over the years, as computers have come out and we're using technology more effectively in, in, in finance, and of course, accounting regulations have changed. And now, you know, a company can in Tokyo can release results, or Kuala Lumpur can release re results, and they tend to be an IFRS and they get translated and, and 
into databases. And now I get all of the analysis that used to take me a week to do, that gets done in seconds and on, onto my iPhone, wherever I am in, in the world. So I would say that financial analysis that I was initially recruited to, to do has got industrialized, uh, if not yeah. commoditized. And, you know, I could look at only so many companies in, in a week or in a month, in a year. Whereas with using big databases, you can analyze thousands of companies in, in seconds. So, so, so that, that changes the way you, well, it, it instantly changes the way you can approach you, your role. And you can start to add value in so many different ways now. And, and so what's been the biggest way that you've changed your approach with the, with the advent of this technology that makes you so much more efficient? So it's, it's no longer enough just to analyze the financial results that a, a company produces. We now have to understand what drives those financial results, what causes those financial results. And, and this is why we now need to do a lot of our work now. The amount, the amount of time I spend on financial analysis, because it's industrialized, is very little now. I spend... And, and the team, too, we spend a huge amount of time on analyzing extra financial information. Rather than stuff related with the company, we're spending time related with the business. Now, there's a subtle difference here. Yeah, yes. So we spend a lot of time on things like corporate culture, human capital, social capital, the, how engaged the business's employees are, the diversity of those employees, whether they have a sense of purpose or not. The way a business discharges its environmental, social governance uh, responsibilities, these are all the hallmarks of a great business. And if you kind of get, if, if a business gets these things right, then they tend to produce interesting products, better products than their competitors, uh, market them better, get them to their customers better, delight their customers. This kind of leads to growing market shares and revenues and profits and, and leads to a much more sustainable business over time. So if we can analyze the underlying business and those extra financial factors, this is what drives future financial returns. And, and, and this is how you've been able to drive the investment success that you've had uh, here at RBC and, and where you were before. Absolutely. Uh, I think this is, we, we learned fairly early on that just financial analysis was, uh, was really, really hard to add value with. So uh, in the, certainly the last 12, 13 years, we have now focused on, on analyzing extra financial information. And the problem is this extra financial information, you can't figure out a company's corporate culture or a business's corporate culture by looking it up on the Bloomberg screen or, or some other data source. You know, you had to go and find this. Yeah, and, and this is what you, you refer to as kind of the human element of investing. Absolutely. Where, and, and it's because your philosophy would be, I think you describe it as, you, you want to be a business owner, not just a, a stock purchaser. Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, the great thing about a business is that businesses invest capital up front, right? So there's human capital, there's financial capital, there's physical capital. And a great business takes that capital, that, that investment up front, and produces multiples of that into the future. You know, poor businesses take that capital and destroy it, right? Yeah, yeah. So our, our kind of task is, is to find those great businesses that invest up front, sort of short-term pain and long-term gain. 
So if you can find those businesses, you want to be there for, for the ride. You want to invest in the business as an owner. We are happy to see the short-term pain, the investment phase, because we want to be along for that, that long-term gain as that investment unfolds into greater returns. And most businesses don't just invest upfront on day one. There's a constant reinvestment of, of returns. And, and that for us is, you know, that just kind of compounds up into the future. And that's really why when we find a great business, we tend to, to want to own it for, for the long term. And, and you, you typically are more of a, a buy and hold than someone who's trading in and out of positions. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think if you can find a great business, uh, you know, the market is still very fixated on, on short term profits. And uh, if I may uh, see, as an accountant, we're, uh, we get so fixated by, uh, by profits and cash flows. And uh, if you ask most finance people, you know, sort of what makes a great business, they'll say, they'll give you a, a financial ratio. You know, they'll give you a number like, you know, EPS or EPS growth or cash flow conversion or return invested capital. Well, you know, I've been asking successful entrepreneurs, you know, what makes their business a great business for, for many years now. And they've never given me an answer that says it's, it's a, it's a financial metric like EPS or cash flow or return invested capital. It's always some derivative of their people. Right? It's always about, well, it's our people. It's our know-how. It's our ability to generate new products. It's our ability to delight our customers. It's our reputation with our customers, our reputation with our regulators, or the loyalty of our suppliers. It's, it's those sorts of things. And this is why you know, we spend our time focusing on, on those those matters, and 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 so I, I I would take it that that is 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 why you you're such a strong proponent of uh, of evaluating ESG or environment, social, and governance factors in a business because that is really that that human element how a, how a company treats its employees, how a company thinks about the environment or or the world as a whole, uh, how they ethically manage their business through proper governance. Is that, is that the tie in there? Exactly, exactly. The, the, the environmental, social and governance uh, parts, are, it's, it's such an important part of all of these extra financial things that we look at. Because in, as businesses move away from sort of physical capital, you know, where you own factories and mines, and my factories faster and better than my competitors, to be honest, that gap is no longer that important because anyone else can build a new factory that's faster, better. The, the key is how you operate those factories and, and what you do with those factories. So it's the, the, what people call academics now calling social capital becomes more important. You could rebuild a, a great business and you can rebuild their factories and their people and, and all of that. You wouldn't get that business. You know, and you can apply this to, to, to so many uh, other businesses. You know, you could take um, Amazon and you could rebuild their warehouses and their, uh, and their server uh, data centers and things like that. You wouldn't get Amazon. You could even hire people with the same kind of qualifications. You wouldn't get Amazon, right? It's, there's something about their culture, the way they make decisions and the way they execute and how they take risks and... Uh, and how they deal with failure and how they learn from failure and, and get better and stronger. That's, that's what makes Amazon. And that's what makes great businesses. See, the way, this all sounds very subjective and nebulous, but on, on the team, we've, 
developed a framework over the years to, to analyze this. And we think of it in, as a good accountant would, I suppose, we use this term sort of contingent assets and contingent liabilities. Uh, these are borrowed terms from uh, accounting language, right? But see, uh, uh, an owner of a business can generate profits by borrowing. It's very easy for uh, uh, a manager to borrow from, uh, say, his employees. If you cut training and development budgets, that saving improves your profits on day one. Now, your employees might be a bit disenchanted, unhappy, they feel devalued, no one's, you know, their, their boss isn't investing in them, isn't training them, developing them, but his profits went up. And, you know, sooner or later, maybe your best employees will start looking for another job. Similarly, you can borrow from your customers. If you fire all of your customer service people, again, your profits go up on day one. But your customers will suffer worse service levels. It might take them a while to figure out that this is systematic now. This isn't just a one-off. It's not that firm just having a bad day. And sooner or later, they're going to start looking for a different supplier. You, know, you can borrow from the future by, by cutting R&D. Again, your profits will go up on day one. You may not have any new products in a few years' time, but hey, that could be someone else's problem. Right? You can borrow from the environment by not cleaning up after yourself. You can borrow from society by mis-selling your, your products, whatever they are, selling them to the wrong customers who don't need them, by overcharging or not paying your taxes. These things create, in our view, contingent liabilities. The contingent liability creates short-term financial profits. And, and that's what everyone gets focused on. But thankfully, there are other businesses who do invest in their people, their customers, their suppliers, the future, their environment, their, their society, uh, and, and so on. And we know that this investment is not for free. It does impact profits. But the key is that the, the market values a dollar of profits, whether it's generated from borrowing or after investing costs, the same. And that's, that's the inefficiency that we are, are so focused on, on exploiting. And this is why ESG and other extra financial factors are a, an alpha source for us. It helps us identify great wealth-creating businesses. Yeah, I, I was out with, uh, with, uh, with one of the team members this morning, Neil Abbott, and we were at a company, and we, we won't disclose the name of the company, but effectively they work with farmers. Uh, in, in emerging markets. And the question was, was asked about, uh, there's lots of strikes at the shipping ports in, in some of these countries where they work. And how do you get around that? Because a massive risk for the business. And the answer from the CEO was initially, well, we, 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 we work with uh, the farmers. And he think right, right away, you go, wait a minute. The CEO should be focused on profitability, not uh, about these, these softer issues. But the rationale behind it was they've worked over decades with these farmers and built relationships and invested in those relationships, uh, help the far genuinely helped the farmers. And they, this is a, a core part of their philosophy and culture. So everyone in the society knows the impact of this business. It, 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 so so when, when the ports are on strike, their goods and services go out. Yep. Be, be, because they've worked, they've been such a great part of the community. And, and so that investment may have cost them a little bit along the way. But today, 
it gives them a competitive advantage that, that makes it a special business. Exactly. I think this is such an important point, and there's plenty of examples like this, because this is clearly a management team who are thinking for the long term. You know, if you're only thinking to the next quarter's earnings, you would not invest in those farmers. You would not, you know, you'd gouge them for everything you can, you'd rip them off, uh, you maximize your profits over the quarter, but then you don't have a supply chain, <laughs> right? And, and similarly, uh, as, as owners of a business, we are delighted that they are investing in their communities and in their supply chain, because it leads to a much more sustainable business. Now, this is a business where you know they're going to be around, they're going to have the loyalty of supply going in, into the next decades. And, you know, when, when we invest in a business, when you pay sort of 20, 25 times earnings for a business, you know, you are discounting the profits for many years ahead. So it makes sense to do that. Now, uh, culture is not just important to you with respect to the businesses that you invest in, but it's also a very big part of the way you and your team manage money. And I think one of the, uh, one of the, the most important things I've learned uh, from getting to know you uh, you're very much uh, not about this is uh, me, this is not Habib's fund, this is not my fund, this is my team's fund, this is our team. We manage this money together. And can, can you talk about, the, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's hard to describe in, in, in a short period of time. I, I've had the privilege of sitting in with your team and it's such an incredible experience the way you operate together, the unique culture. But, but talk about the, the team element of investment management and, and how you've built that culture and, and made it sustainable. Yeah. Dave, this is a key point. And, and you know, it, it sort of fairly early on in my, in my sort of investing career, I, I kind of realized that there's no way, especially as a global investor, there's no way you can do this single-handed. You know, it's just not possible. There's too many companies, too many countries, too many currencies, too many industries trying to understand what's going on in semiconductors one day to then figuring out what's going on in software and in retail and in, uh, you know, luxury and so on. It's just, you know, you either end up doing it very badly or you end up killing yourself or probably both, right? So it's, it's very simple. This is a team sport. Uh, it's the difference between, say, um, playing golf and playing soccer, right? Or football, as, as we in Europe call it, right? <laughs> yeah. So golf is between you and the course. You know, as long as you have enough clubs in, uh, in your bag, it's, a, it's an individual sport and you only have yourself to blame and, and there you go. But with playing football or, or soccer, it's a team sport. You know, you have, your goalkeeper is never going to score you any goals, but try playing without one. You know, I don't care how talented you are, how, how good your, your team is, you know, you're going to lose a lot of games. So you need some structure. You need specialists. You know, your wingers who go up and down. You know, if you just look at what, what your winger does over the course of a game, he just runs up and down the side of, 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 the, of the pitch. And you think, oh, well, that's crazy. But look at it in the context of a game, it makes a lot of sense. So this is why when, when you build a team, especially as global investors, you need different specialists. But having, like, again, I'm coming back to the sports analogy. Just having 11 star players on a pitch doesn't make a team. You need a team that understands, has a clear philosophy, everyone buys into that, that covers for each other, that backs each other. Someone makes a mistake, someone slips, someone else is in place to, to figure that out, and we all work as a team. And, and that's, those are the two things that we, we have really taken to heart uh, when, when building our team. 
we need specialists. So we have sort of eight people who are dedicated to industry specialisms. Uh, you know, one person doing financials, to doing consumer, and so on. And then we have three rocket scientists, if you will, doing portfolio construction that manage manage risk. Think think of them as as the, as the defense, right? Yeah, they make sure we don't concede any goals, any uh, any unintended goals. Uh, and and myself, you know, I, I don't know where I fit into this analogy, but but that's a different issue. So we have the right structure, the right skill set on the team, but then we also need the right culture. And I think that the culture, if if you ask me what differentiates us, I mean, frankly, we use the same databases and uh, and computers and uh, information sources as anyone else. So, so I think what differentiates us is is our culture. And, and there's three things I, I would say about our culture. One is that we are genuinely uh, a, a meritocracy. There is complete transparency. Uh, everyone on the team has access to all information and anyone can challenge anything. Uh, we have a whiteboard in, in our meeting room and anyone can go and write the name of a stock on the, the whiteboard and that has to be reviewed. It's just a, a simple way. It tends to happen when someone's away from the office, but, but that's yeah. a different matter. But, 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 it, but it's, it, it, yeah. it really is, uh, and sorry to break in, but it, it really is something that is special about the team. Uh, when I got to experience in walking back with Neil today, and we saw some numbers, and we also saw some of the, the other uh, softer issues, the, the, the human side of, of the company, and he's thinking already as we're walking back because he's going to come in front of the whole team and present his view of the company. Okay. And, and again, as I've witnessed it, it, it is such an open and comfortable discussion. People respectfully raise challenges and issues because, and, and everyone listens to each objection that's raised because they know it's coming from a place of trying to identify the absolute best investment okay. for, the, for, for the fund. And, and this kind of brings me to my the second point I was going to make about the culture of the team is that it is a culture of, of a real team. This is not individual star players. It, it is a team. And, and for us, success is not that someone had a great call and someone, you know, and someone has to defend a view. Uh, it's about getting to the right judgment. Yes. That's the thing that's important. And even if that means that someone else says, Gosh, I hadn't thought about that. I need to reconsider my view. We would much rather change our mind and get it right than stick to something out of some sort of mistaken sense of pride or or, or anything like that about self-image. So it is the culture is very much driven about the team outcome and team result and, and what we produce. And it, it was really important when when we came to RBC that that we had a similar culture across uh, the firm, and that the compensation uh, structure that that we have in place actually supports that. That it is based on team outcomes that everyone gets evaluated and and paid, uh, and, and so I think that that's that's a, a key point. The third part of the culture that I really wanted to emphasize was that it is a culture of continuous improvement. Now. The market is a is a humbling place, and uh, I think everyone knows that, <laughs> especially us. You know, it's anyone who's been doing it this long, uh, you you realize uh, how how tough it is to to make forecasts into the future. But every decision we have made in the last eleven years uh, since we've been together has been recorded in a database. 
uh, even if that is uh, that we looked at a at a stock and decided to pass on it because we didn't like the underlying business or we didn't like the valuation or whatever. So we never invested a, a dollar of, of capital in that business. Even that judgment gets recorded. Uh, so we have a long history of our of the decisions we've made. And roughly a couple of times a year, we go back and we analyze uh, the, the, the data in that database. And uh, we spend a little bit of time looking at, uh, at the decisions that worked out well, because uh, those are the ones we want to repeat. But we spend a lot more time focusing on the things that didn't quite work out, I mean, the mistakes. Yeah. And it's really important for us to, to figure out why we made those those mistakes. Uh, some are, are, and many are, you could never forecast what happened because, you know, uh, regulations change, politics change, uh, um, technology changes. You couldn't have forecast those things. But many of those things uh, perhaps we should have thought about because the, the, the mistakes we make are errors of judgment. Uh, we are forecasting where this business is going to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time. And, and and those forecasts are very susceptible to, to emotion, to you know, fear and greed, optimism and pessimism. And as human beings, we all get impacted by that. So we need a culture where it's, it's fine to admit to yourself why you made that, why you were too optimistic or too pessimistic, and then share that with the other 11 people in the room. Uh, that's not easy in many competitive, high-pressured kind of environments that we all, all work in. But I think if it's something that I'm really proud of, it's, it's that we do have that culture where we can reflect and share and learn and improve. And then these learnings get embedded in the collective memory of the team. So we help ourselves prevent each other from making mistakes and, and we learn from each other's mistakes and we get better and stronger. And, and that's what builds the trust as well Absolutely. over time. Absolutely. Without trust, the, this thing all breaks down. It completely breaks down. So I, I, I think that the culture of the team is really important. So, so how do you as, as, as the leader of the team and, and you've built this incredible culture within the, the, the team that's working on uh, the investment products that, that, that you're managing. How do you mesh that and have it fit into a much bigger corporate culture and, 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 and maintain that culture in the face of a, of a much bigger beast uh, that's always around you? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good question. Look, as a team, we have to maintain our own identity and our own culture, and, and that's really important. But the choice of our environment around us, and, and this is why you know, coming to, uh, to RBC GAM was, was such a big decision for us, that you need to sort of, the host culture has to be sympathetic to this and has to support this. And it would be very difficult for us. And look, there's many great firms out there, but uh, some of them have a very individualistic culture, some have a shorter term culture, some have a much more aggressive culture that just wouldn't have been right for us. And, and so it was really important that we went to the right host culture. We did a lot of due diligence, uh, uh, you know, probably as much due diligence as they did on us yes. uh, before this sort of this marriage got kind of consummated, uh, that it works. And I think we've come to the right place for us where it, there is a long-term uh, culture. There is a culture of 
continuous learning and learning from your mistakes. There is this culture of intellectual humility. Uh, and I think that was really important. And, and that, uh, that, that humility uh, combined with that, uh, that focus on culture and teamwork, and then if we go back to the start of our discussion, that optimism is, is the hallmark of you as, a, as an investment manager, if I was to put it into to, to, to four words. Who was your influence? Uh, who, who are your influences early in your career that, that, that helped you build this philosophy and ultimately build such a successful team? You know, uh, if, if I go back right to the beginning, uh, I'll go back to my accounting days, actually, when, when I was in audit. And uh, first of all, audit was, was wonderful, where you could go into different businesses, you know, every, every couple of weeks you'd be in a different business. And, and you had a chance to sort of walk around that business and ask lots of dumb questions and learn about that business. And you kind of get a sense of, oh, wow, this is a really cool business. And in the initial it was dependent on, on their offices and what kind of furniture they had and, you know, all of that. But after a while, it was just, the, you know, the, it was the culture of the people that you realized, gosh, this is a really great business. And they, they may work in a dump of an office building, but this is a great business. And, and you know, those sorts of things. And, and, you know, you could go next week to another business in a similar industry that you think, God, I'd hate to wait, work here because it's just so process-driven and so hierarchical and, and you know, there, there's no kind of imagination, diversity of thought here. And it's those sorts of things that really kind of inspire you to, to say, wow, these, there, there's so many different ways of doing things. And in the short term, you know, sort of businesses in the same industry kind of have very similar results. But over the long term, uh, boy, do they have different, uh, end up in different places. Habib, uh, thank you very much for the time today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you again for having me on the show.